0: Good evening and today we are going to be learning a a talk from the Rebbe that is connected to the theme, well not the theme, it's connected to an occurrence that happens in this week's parasha. Um, It's actually a very fascinating talk, it uh, takes us to places that we wouldn't really expect uh, and as always we're going to walk away with uh, a new understanding and appreciation for life, our job in life and, um, and in general of Torah. So here goes, this week's parasha is unique in many ways, one of the ways, which is pointed out in various uh, formats, is that this is the first parasha where we hear the name of Moshe, Moshe, there we go, Moses, right, the entire Torah is called Torah Moshe, the Torah of Moses, in fact, that's not a a word that, uh, I didn't make up that term didn't come about 150 years ago or a 1,000 years ago. It's actually a term that's used in Tanakh. Right? The prophet uh, Malachi, I believe, he says, Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi, Remember the Torah of Moses. Tehras So then it's called the five books of Moses. 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 And the first time that Moses is mentioned in the Torah is in this week's parasha. So that's a very unique thing. Um, we love Moses for many reasons one reason is because he's Moshe Rabbeinu he's Moses our teacher he was the one that through him the Torah reached us he was our first Torah teacher also he was the first leader of the Jewish people he was the one that brought us out of Egypt he was the one that took care of us for 40 years yes yes it was all God but God had a flesh and blood person through which he led the people right so we love Moses very much Um, And you think that Moses, his leadership and his uh, mentorship of the Jewish people would go unopposed. Who would try to oppose Moses? However, the fact of the matter is that any good leader, any real leader, any genuine leader has opposition. That's just the nature of the beast. the way it works. And Moses, our first leader, uh, also had tremendous opposition. Tremendous, what I mean by that is it wasn't a... uh, it wasn't a multitude of people. It wasn't a majority of the people that were against Moses. But he had an opposition, um, a, a very, uh, how do you say, a tough opposition. And this opposition went for many, many years. In fact, in this week's show, they show up right away, almost at the beginning, the very first time that Moses shows leadership for the Jewish people. He shows that he cares about the Jews and he does something, he puts himself on the line To help the Jewish people, these troublemakers show up already. And uh, so let's see, what's the story over here? Page 1, source 1. So we're skipping the story of Moshe's birth, which that itself was extraordinary. He was born to extraordinary parents under extraordinary circumstances. Um, He survived the first few months of his life in an extraordinary way. He was placed on the water, on the river. And uh, he was he was saved by none other than Pharaoh's daughter herself, and then he was raised by Pharaoh in Pharaoh's palace. There's nothing normal about this kid's. He had, he had extraordinary siblings. He had extraordinary siblings. That's right, an extraordinary sister, an extraordinary mother, and father, and brother. Everything was extraordinary about this guy. And the Torah tells us like this: during those days, Moses grew up and went out to his brothers and looked at their burden. So he was a young man. I don't know his exact age. But uh, instead of being sheltered in the palace, now you went out to see what's exactly happening to the Jewish people under the rule of Pharaoh. He saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man, his brother. <clears throat> he turned this way and that way, and he saw that there was no man. So he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses sees an Egyptian striking a Hebrew to the point where it warrants that this Egyptian should be killed. In other words, the Egyptian was, killing, was, was whipping the Hebrew man mercilessly in a way that it was, he was going to kill him. So Moses stands up for the Jew, and he, he kills the Egyptian. Why, why was the Egyptian hitting the Hebrew man more than usual? What's the deal? So Rashi fills in the blanks here. Hitting and whipping him. This was the husband of Shlomit Bat Divri. And he, the Egyptian, had laid eyes upon her. All right, so the Egyptian man that is whipping the Hebrew man, the Egyptian man had laid eyes on the Hebrew man's wife. The Hebrew man's wife's name was Shlomit Bat-Divri. We know her name because it shows up much later in the Torah, in the Book of Numbers, I believe, or Leviticus, one of the two. Anyway, at night, so okay, so the Egyptian wanted to be with Shlomit. But he can't just be with her in her house when the husband is there. At night, he summoned him. In other words, the Egyptian summoned the Hebrew to work and made him leave his house. Then he entered and came upon his wife. She thought it was her husband. right? It was pitch black, etc. When the husband returned and found out, this Egyptian beat him all day. So, In other words, the Egyptian went in, essentially raped Shlomit, but she didn't realize she was being raped. She thought it was her husband. Then the Egyptian left, the Hebrew man came home, and he realized that his wife had, had been with her husband, but it wasn't him. So he realized that the Egyptian was the one that had done it. When the Egyptian realized the Hebrew had realized it, the Egyptian wanted to cover his tracks, and therefore he was beating the Hebrew man essentially with intentions of killing him. And once he killed the guy, now there's no problem, right? No one's going to know the secret. Except her. Except her. Why would she go and reveal the secret? This was before the times when people would uh, be open about their challenges and things like that. Fine. So this is this is one day, right? Moses goes out and he does his first act of leadership, which is the stand, at least the first act of leadership that is recorded in the Torah. Now, mind you, he wasn't yet officially the leader of the Jewish people. He was not appointed. He was not given a mandate by God. But uh, obviously he was displaying um, traits of leadership right he cared what was going on around him he saw what was happening around him you know people walking down the street they don't even realize people are being mugged people are being attacked etc they just ignore it they say what why do i have to mix in moses could have easily turned the other way and said i'm not mixing in i'm not getting into trouble with an egyptian in order to save another hebrew man another slave the egyptians always beat the hebrews but he cared he wanted to see what happened and how to protect his fellow his fellow jew anyway Moses went out on the second day. So notice that on the first day when he killed the Egyptian man, he he looked here and there and he made sure that there was no one watching. He he was making sure that no Egyptians were watching. There were plenty of Hebrews around. um, But he figured the Hebrews wouldn't tell on him. Moses went out on the second day and behold, two Hebrew men were quarreling. Moses said to the wicked one, why are you going to strike your fellow? So you see, Moses goes out the second day, and he sees another crisis. What's the crisis? This time, two Jews are fighting. And one of them lifted his hand to hit his fellow during the fight. That's what you do during a fight, right? You don't just fight with your words, you fight with your fists. And Moses calls out and he says, wicked one, he says, why why are you going to strike your fellow? He's trying to, I guess, break them up. He's interfering in the fight. Rashi tells us where these two Hebrew men, Datan and Aviram. That's a Sephardi way of saying it. Datan and Aviram. I'm just going to say Dosan and Aviram. How's that? I think I think just saying Dosan and Aviram kind of allows it to flow from the tongue and it fits their, their uh, what's it called? It fits their profile here. Um, okay, so Moses tells Dosan and Aviram, hey, why are you fighting? Why, why are you going to hit your fellow? He retorted, so I guess the one that had lifted his hand he turns to him and says, "Who made you a man, a prince, and a judge over us? Do you plan to slay me like you slayed the Egyptian?" Moses became frightened and said, "Indeed, the matter has become known." In other words, these two quarreling Hebrews—they're basically threatening Moses and saying, "We're going to tell him. You mix into our fight. We're going to cause you trouble. We're going to tell Pharaoh the fact that you killed the Egyptian—or at least one of them did. One of them." whoever it is, the point is that both of them were on the same team on that. You know, when two guys are fighting and you mix in, both of them are going to turn against you. Uh, That doesn't mean you shouldn't mix in. Sometimes you have to mix in, right? Moses mixed in. He felt it was his responsibility to make sure the Jews are not fighting with each other. Uh, But they turned against him, right? So this is the first time that Dawson and Aviram, they they challenged Moses. They told Pharaoh what happened and Moshe's life was in danger. In fact, he was arrested, convicted, was put on the, what do they call it? On the chopping block. Yeah, The, the, the executioner was about to chop his head off. And um, as the sword came down on Moshe's neck, his neck turned into marble. The sword cracked. The executioner went blind. All the people that were there went blind. Moses unshackled himself and ran away. Fine? He ran away. Not rushing, is it? You're saying, is it, is this story that I just told you said clearly in the five books of Moses? It's alluded to, it's alluded to, it's alluded to, you know where it's alluded to? In a few chapters later, in Pashat Yitro, when Yitro, his father-in-law, comes to visit him, I'm I'm rushing ahead over here, but the point is that Moshe tells him a lot of stories, and he says, God who saved me from Pharaoh's sword. Where in the story was ever a sword lifted against Moses? Mm -hmm. The answer is right here where he was found guilty of killing an Egyptian. So therefore, what is the punishment for murder an Egyptian officer? Killing an Egyptian officer, was uh, he himself was going to be killed. But God saved him. In fact, it's also alluded to a different place. In this week's parasha, it's alluded to, I just remembered, when God, you know, the story with the, the burning bush, right? When Moshe mm-hmm. sees the burning bush and God comes to, comes and tells him that he should go, and speak to Pharaoh, right? You should go and, and let, say, "Let my people go," right? They're The famous. So Moses tells God, says, "You want me to be your diplomat? You want me to be your spokesperson? I can't talk. I, uh, I stutter." So God answers him a very interesting thing. He says, "Who gave a mouth to man? Who makes people, <coughs> um, who makes people blind? Who makes people deaf?" What's he referring to? So basically what God tells him is, who made the executioners blind and deaf so that you should be able to escape? I did. So if I can make them blind and deaf, I can make your stutter go away and you're able to speak. The point is, the story I just told you is alluded to in different ways. You know, it's peppered throughout, uh, it's sprinkled throughout the stories of, of the five books of Moses it's a good story, just take it, that's all it's a whole story that's there in this verse Moses became frightened and said, indeed the matter has become known, oh they didn't bring the translation here, but the the continuation is that uh, Pharaoh heard about it, and he wanted to kill Moses and Moses ran away from Pharaoh, and he settled in Midian right, so we know for a fact that Pharaoh knew about it, he wanted to kill Moses, and he escaped how did he escape? because uh, the miracle happened, fine But why was Moshe's life in danger the first time? Because of Dosan and Aviram. They were the first troublemakers to challenge Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah? I was going to say, he's actually got two sets of enemies. Besides for Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm talking about, Pharaoh is an external enemy. But every good leader has internal enemies (laughs) from from within. Alrighty, now let's see, what was another another time that the Jewish people, that Dosan and Aviram show up and they challenge Moses? So, um, source number two, I'm going to skip from the top, basically, the Jewish people are in the desert, they don't have food, they're complaining, they don't know what to do, Um, and God gives them manna, right, he gives them this coriander seed, you know, white, the stuff that looks like white coriander seeds, they're wondering what is it, they call it manna, fine, Then let's go to the fourth paragraph. This is the thing that God has commanded. Gather from it every person as much as they can eat, an omer for each person according to the number of persons, each one for those in his tent you shall take. The children of Israel did so. They gathered both the one who gathered much and the one who gathered little. They measured it with an omer. Whoever gathered much did not have more. Whoever gathered little did not have less. Each one according to his eating capacity gathered. Moses said to them, right? So you have an omer's worth of manna every day. Moses said to them, let no one leave over any of it until morning. There's no such thing as leaving leftovers. Except on Shabbos. Well, we got to Shabbos later. We didn't get to Shabbos yet. But let's go to page number three. Some men did not obey Moses and left over some of it until morning. And it bred worms and became putrid. And Moses became angry with them. Who were these men? Uh, she tells us, there's another time they show up in the book of numbers the entire community raised their voices and shouted and the people wept on that night what's this talking about when the jewish people asked that they should send spies into the land of israel to check it out and the spies came back and they had a bad report so the people cried, all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the entire congregation said if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in this desert why does God bring us to this land to fall by the sword, our wives and children will be as spoils, is it not better for us to return to Egypt? They said to each other let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt Rabbi Nubachia tells us who were these people that said let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt? Dosan and Aviram came up with the idea to return to Egypt. You're seeing, a, you say, it? it's, a, it's, pattern, it's yeah. a pattern. And then Indeed. finally, finally, so if you think Moses had to deal with them for 40 years, that was not the case. 40 years in the desert, that was not the case. Um, by the way, before we can, okay, let, let's finish this, and then I'll tell you something, an interesting thing. Um, uh, source number four after the, the terrible story of the, of the spies, the Jewish people are now in the desert, they know they're going to be there for another 39 years, Korach, the son of Yitzhah, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi, took himself to one side, along with Dawson and Aviram, uh, for the descendants of Reuven, they confronted Moses together with 250 men from the children of Israel, chieftains of the congregation, representatives of the assembly, men of repute, they assembled against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves for the entire congregation are all holy and God is in their midst. Why do you raise yourselves above God's assembly in the ultimate mutiny? Or (laughs) they tried to do a mutiny against Moses led by Korach. uh, But who who were his lieutenants? Dawson and Aviram. They led the mutiny against Moses and in a very short time that mutiny was was, uh, laid to rest. They all were. Swallowed by the ground, including Dawson and Aviram. And that's when their trouble and their opposition to Moses ended. Um, Okay, so that's the story of Dawson and Aviram. Another time that they are kind of mentioned in this week's parsha is uh, going back to the story of the, the burning bush. So God tells Moses to go back to Egypt. Why does Moses not want to go back? His first problem is, says, God, you remember I left Egypt for a reason. Why did I leave Egypt? Because there were Jews that told on me. There were Muslim. There were people that went and they wanted me dead. Right? How can I go back to Egypt? They're going to do the same thing again to me. So God says, The people that want to kill you, they died. And Rashi explains, Rashi says like this, what God is referring to is dosan and aviram. What does it mean they died? They were very much alive. But they became very poor. Dawson and Aviram, when Moses, you know, interfered with their fist fight, they were wealthy people. <laughs> kind of gives you a little bit of an insight into, <laughs> you know, two wealthy people, they're fighting, hey, what are you mixing in, right? They were very wealthy and they had big, big egos. And when they went to Pharaoh and told on Moses, Pharaoh listened to them because they were wealthy. That's why he got involved, right? He got involved. So God tells them, don't worry, Dawson and Aviram, they lost all their money, they're worthless. So you can go back to Egypt, they have no influence, they have no access, they're whatever. Okay. Um, and they, they show up again in this week's parish. We'll, we'll see soon. By the way, they just keep on showing up. They keep popping up. Alright, so now let's, let's go back to this first story of Dawson and Aviram. One of them lifts his hand and he wants to hit his friend. Now, every word of the Torah is exact, is specific. And Moses, whenever Moses speaks, he's teaching Torah. He's teaching us Torah, basically. Right? That's what Moses is all about. So from this conversation, from this interaction that Moses has with these two quarreling men, these two fighting men, we learn a halacha. What's the halacha? Let's look at source number five. Source five. One who strikes an innocent Jew whether child or adult, man or woman, violates a negative commandment. Not only that, even raising a hand to strike is forbidden. And one who raises a hand, even without striking, is wicked. Where do we know that from? Source number six from the Talmud. Reish Lakish said, one who raises a hand against their fellow, even without striking them, is deemed wicked. Right? You're only called wicked if you did something wrong. Right? So he says, even just raising the hand, you're already called wicked. What's the proof? As the verse says, he, Moses, said to the wicked one, why are you going to strike your fellow? It does not state why did you strike, but why are you going to strike? Even without striking, he was deemed wicked. So just, Moses is looking at these two people fighting, how does he know one of them is going to strike the other one? He can't read minds. The only way he knows is because apparently one of them lifted his hand. He's about to hit the other guy. So he says, Hey, why, wicked one, why are you going to hit? He doesn't say, Why did you hit? If he hit, for sure he's wicked. That's not what Moses says. He says, Why are you going to hit? Uh, source number seven. Also, for, what is that? The. Yeah. It's the new year, huh? Fine. Source seven. What do we do for the new year? We blow the shoifer. And they make other noises, right? Okay. Make lights in the sky. Lights in the sky. We have been cautioned against a hint of striking, even without an actual blow. The Talmud says, one who raises a hand against their fellow is deemed wicked, as the verse says. He said to the wicked one, why are you going to strike your friend? Fine. Is everything simple? Everything's easy? Everything makes sense? No. No. That's okay. no. There are, there there are, are exceptions, in. I think. Well, 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 Before we get to the exceptions. No, no, no. Forget about the exceptions for now. We have, we have to focus on something here. If someone is going to hit their friend, in other words, they're in a situation where they are fighting, and they're about to raise their hand, and they're about to hit in a destructive manner, it's called a rasha. We're not talking here about a parent striking the child in order to discipline, etc. Even that you shouldn't necessarily be doing, right? There's certain times that hitting are, is important. There's a time, for example, the Torah says that if a person does a certain sin and there are two witnesses that see it and they warn him, and he does the sin anyway, and they bring him to the Beisden, to the court, and the court says in order he has to be, has to be whipped. 39 lashes, okay? So the one that's giving the whips is doing a mitzvah. We're not talking about that. Talking here about two guys, they're fighting, two girls, doesn't matter. Two people are fighting. Hitting for sure is not allowed. But even to lift your hand to hit, that's already not allowed. So here is the question. <laughs> How could that be punishable? How could Why could you be called a Russia for lifting your hand? There's a famous line, your right to hit me stops a centimeter in front of my nose, right? Mm-hmm. No one in America is going to Uh, is going to arrest you for lifting a hand. Lifting a hand? What's Maybe you won't hit. The only thing wrong is if you actually hit, you actually cause pain, you actually destroy, you break a bone, whatever. Hitting is a problem. But lifting your hand to hit, why should that be a problem? Why should you be called wicked for that? So the Rebbe is actually going to analyze this from all sides, and it's it's actually beautiful. Page six. It is a basic principle of Torah law that people are not punished for negative thoughts and intentions. It doesn't mean you're allowed to have negative thoughts or intentions, but you can't be punished for doing so. You can't be judged for that. People can only be punished if their intentions were actualized. This raises the question, why is a person that merely raised their hand against their fellow without actually striking them termed wicked? This person didn't actually harm anyone, neither physically nor financially. He did raise his hand, but the strike remained in the realm of intentions and was not actualized. Moreover, no person can truly know what is in his fellow's heart. Therefore, so long as there was no actual strike, we can't be fully certain about the person's true intentions. Obvious question. Let's go a little deeper. The law is that a person who raises their hand against their fellow is disqualified from serving as a witness. <laughs> we, we consider this person a Russia. and if someone is a Russia, they cannot serve as a proper witness. This raises the question, how can we place a person in the category of wicked people who are disqualified from serving as witnesses on the basis of them merely raising their hand to strike without actually laying a blow? Page 7. Here it's going to get a little technical which might be frustrating, but, it, but the, the key is in this technicality. The key to the whole thing is in the technicality. The wording, one who raises their hand against their fellow, implies that kicking with the foot would be different, huh? <laughs> so one who raises their hand. The verse that served as the source for this law used the word strike without specifying hand or foot. The law should have been worded accordingly. Anyone who intended to strike their fellow, even if they didn't actually strike as a wicked person. Why then does the law specify raising one's hand? What is the, what's the meaning? Why are we specifically invoking the hand? As if that's the only way to hit someone, as if that's the only way to inflict pain on someone, as if that's the only way to let out your anger at someone else. There are other ways. You can kick them, right? But the law in Maimonides and also in the, in the Talmud, I believe, it also says, one who raises his hand. Yeah. Rishlokish, when he said this teaching, he spoke about raising the hand. Which is very specific. Yeah, yeah. The wording of the Talmud, when Rishlokish taught it, he said, Hamak someone who raises his hand. And when Maimonides codified it, he also uses the term, <clears throat> even to lift your hand. So here they have a saying, what, what, what's, a, what's the uniqueness of the hand? You can do other things with, with your hand. Course. Oh, 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 very good. Page 8. Huh? Can you be safe? He said you could do other things with your hand. So let's see, What? why were you created with a hand in the first place? Oh. So let's see what happens here. Page 8. There is a key difference between the hands and the feet and the other parts of the body. Most of our productive actions and work are done with our hands. This is also true at the other extreme. Most damage that we cause is also done with our hands. The feet, by contrast, primarily serve the function of walking from one place to another, not fixing or building or damaging and destroying. Now, You could fix and build and damage and destroy with your feet. You could. But not creatively. You can't really do it. You can't blow up a bridge with your foot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To blow up a bridge, you have to take your hands, you have to wire that bridge, put the explosives and light the fuse and blow up that bridge. Right? You gotta use your hands. There's no way to build a table, there's no way to (coughs) to build a shelf from Ikea, and there's no way to make a beautiful painting without your hands. There's no way to do a surgery without your hands. Right? Most Most, (laughs) We're talking about most people. right? We're not talking about those (laughs) crazies that they're able to do everything with their feet. And by the way, I would never let someone do an open-heart surgery on anyone with their feet. Right? Do it with their fingers. Yeah. This difference is a result of their different location on the human body. The hands are in the middle of the body, closer to the head, and they have five fingers Capable of executing fine skills, right? The real fine motor skills is in your fingers, right? Right, exactly. The the fingers, that is the real deal. Uh, The feet are located at the bottom of the body, and their toes are suited only for walking, right? That's pretty much what the toes are for, to keep your balance, you know, one foot in front of the next, etc. The Rebbe invokes Noach here, because this talk was actually actually happened during, uh, on the Shabbos of Parashat Noach. Uh, we're not going to get into how exactly it fit into the, into the, um, the Febrengan. If I would have to guess, it would, it would be that it was the Rambam of the day, but it's just a guess right now. But um, this can also be seen reflected in the teaching of the sages that prior to Noach, all people were born without separated fingers because they didn't need to work the earth. Noach was the first to be born with separated fingers. I don't want to get into details of that medrash, but uh, one, of, one of the reasons why it was called Noach, Noach which means to kind of bring uh, calm and, and peace and, and like rest to the world, Zayin uh, Achameinu um, is uh, because he was the first one that was like born with, with the fingers. He was, able, he was the first one with fine motor skills. That's basically the idea. And he was able to create tools that were able to help the people work the land, etc., Point is is, that the hands are the most creative part of the body. This difference is also reflected in the realm that is the purpose of the human's creation. The entire human body was created in order to serve God. (laughs) However, this is most strongly (laughs) expressed in a person's hands more so than in their feet and other limbs. Let's go to page 9. Our hands were created in order to perform the mitzvot, as the Alteb writes in Tanya, he says, the hand distributes charity, or does another mitzvah, the point is that the hand, that is the, that's the the—that's the organ of the body, that's the limb of the body, that does mitzvahs, mm-hmm. it doesn't learn Torah, learning Torah happens in the head, with her mouth, right? with her eyes, with her ears, that's how we learn Torah, but mitzvah observance, that basically happens with the hands, most of the mitzvahs, are done with the hand, As we see, most mitzvahs are achieved through the hands. The same is true in the other extreme. Most transgressions and destructive acts are also performed through the hands. The feet, by contrast, are primarily for walking and not usually directly involved in mitzvah observance. What are they involved in? The preparation for a mitzvah. Walking to a mitzvah, walking to shul, running. Running to shul, whatever it is. But put differently, the feet generally serve as enablers for mitzvot or transgressions. As the Mishnah says, run towards even a light mitzvah and flee from transgression. But the hands are directly involved in giving charity and performing many other mitzvot. So why do we have hands? To do mitzvahs, that's what they were created for. Based on the above, we can understand the severity of raising a hand against one's fellow. The prohibition to raise a hand against a fellow is not just because it can lead to a strike. The very raising of the hand itself is the problem. When a person takes their hand, which was created to do mitzvot, to help others and the like, and raises it against their fellow, they are abusing the purpose and nature of the hand. The hand has a nature, the hand has a purpose, and here you went, and you are using the hand in a direction which is the exact opposite of its purpose. You're abusing nature. You're abusing your hand. Such a person is branded wicked and is disqualified for giving from giving testimony, not because they intended to hit their fellow, but because by raising their hand against another person, they use their hand for the opposite of the purpose for which it was created. This is the meaning of the term wicked. A wicked person is someone who acts against the purpose for which they were created. Humans were created in order to serve their creator. And this person is doing the opposite. This is why the sages say that no person transgresses unless they have been possessed by a spirit of foolishness. Transgression is contrary to logic and contrary to human nature. So now, It's it's a whole different meaning to this idea. It's not that, oh, because you raised your hand, you had the bad intention, therefore we're punishing you. No, no, no. You took that hand that was created for a certain purpose and you used it in the wrong direction, that's an abuse of nature. That's an abuse of God's gift. And that's the sin. That's the problem. So what does that tell us? What does that tell us? Strange thought. They always make you raise your hand before you testify Oh, they say you can't you can't be a witness if you hand. Interesting, interesting. So, like this, let's talk here about Dosan and Aviram. Dosan and Aviram, you know, you would think that they were Pashat, uh, they were bad people from beginning to end. But I was going to point out that actually according to one of the readings of the Parsha, Dosan and Aviram can actually be seen in a very interesting light. Uh, let's, uh, All right, let's read. Page 11. We can now also understand the fact that the support for the law that a person who raises their hand against their fellow is called wicked comes from a verse written about Dawson and Aviram. And he said to the wicked person, why are you going to strike your fellow? Who are Dawson and Aviram? Dawson and Aviram were the officers who suffered beatings for their work to lighten the burden of the Jewish people. They risked their lives by going to Pharaoh to demand that he improve the conditions of the Jewish slaves. They were so devoted that they even had the audacity to speak this respectfully to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, May God look upon you and judge you. Okay. A little bit of context here. The Jews were were enslaved by the Egyptians. But here's how the Egyptians, you know know the Nazis, whatever, in the labor camps, the Nazis didn't oversee the work itself. They would appoint Jewish inmates, right, to oversee the work. And some of them were like kapos, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them worked for the Nazis and they and they abused their fellow Jews in a very, very terrible way. So the, the where, where did the Nazis take this from? They took it from the Egyptians. What happened over here? The Egyptians appointed Jews as taskmasters or whatever, officers over their fellow Jews. And every, I don't know if every individual Jew or every group of Jews had a certain quota of bricks that they needed to produce every day for the construction. If they didn't produce the bricks, so the Egyptians, when they would count out the bricks and whatever it was wasn't produced, they wouldn't beat the Jews, the workers, they wouldn't beat the slaves, they would beat the Jewish overseers. They would beat the Jewish officers. What was the purpose of that? They would beat the officers so that in turn the officers should beat the slaves that they should work more and they should produce enough, uh, enough bricks. The Torah tells us that Vayuku Shaitrei B'nai Yisrael the officers, they were beaten and beaten and beaten because the officers refused to beat the slaves. They refused to work the slaves above and beyond their capacity. The slaves could not produce the amount of bricks that they had to produce. So the officers they were being beaten so that shows them a tremendous amount of self-sacrifice on the part of the officers now um these are so towards the end of the parish after moses you know he comes to pharaoh and he says let my people go pharaoh gets very upset and he says hey they want to leave i'm going to make life much more miserable for them till now i was giving them straw for them to be able to make the bricks I was giving them the, the supplies. I was giving them what they needed. Now yeah. they have to go and find their own supplies, right? Yeah, so he made materials. life. Uh, the raw materials. Exactly. So he wasn't going to give the materials. So now they have to go and find it themselves. And they still have to give the same the same amount. So the, at this point, they definitely couldn't keep up with the quota. The officers were being beaten. And then the Torah tells us that the officers came to Pharaoh. And they begged Pharaoh to have mercy. And Pharaoh says, pim Atem, near pim You guys are being lazy. You're talking about going out into the desert and offering sacrifices. You go and work. And then the Torah tells us that right afterwards when the officers came out, they met Moses and Aaron, and they started to scream out against Moses and Aaron. You have to realize that by then, Moses and Aaron were already confirmed prophets. They were already the confirmed prophets of God. Aaron had been a prophet for many years in Egypt. Moses came with a message from God, and he already showed several miracles, and it was already proven that he was the legitimate prophet. Right? And here they're going, and they're, 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 how you say, they're, they're attacking Moses and Aaron. Let's see, it's source number eight. The officers of the children, this is the, the verse in Exodus, in this week's parasha. The officers of the children of Israel and the Pharaoh's taskmasters had appointed over them were beaten, saying, why have you not completed your quota to make bricks like the day before yesterday, neither yesterday nor today? So the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why do you do this to your servants? Struggle is not given to your servants. But they tell us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, and your people are sinning. But he, Pharaoh, said, you are lazy, just lazy, this is why you said, let us go, let us sacrifice to God. Now go and work, but you will not be given stubble. Stubble, yeah. Nevertheless, you must produce the same number of bricks. Let's continue on the next page. The officers of the children of Israel saw them in distress, saying, do not reduce the number of your bricks, the requirement of each day in its day. They met Moses and Aaron standing before them when they came out from Pharaoh's presence. They said to them, May God look upon you and judge, for you have made us obnoxious in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to place a sword into their hands to kill us. Who were these people? Rashi says, "Dason and Aviram. And according to one of the interpretations of this Rashi, the entire story talks about Dassan and Aviram, that they were officers who were beaten on behalf of their fellow Jews, and they they cared so much about their fellow Jews that they took the risk of going to Pharaoh to beg Pharaoh to have Rahmonis that Pharaoh should have some uh, some mercy on the Jewish people, and they were thrown out. And then when they saw Moses and Aaron, they let it out of Moses and Aaron. And it took it took guts, and where did that guts come from? From their care for their fellow Jews. It turns out Dasan and Aviram they had some uh, redeeming properties, uh, redeeming redeeming qualities. To them. The fact that they cared about their fellow Jews. Right? Mm-hmm. So the Rebbe is going to draw upon that and then show us something very ironic about the story in the beginning of the parasha. Mm-hmm. So page 12 in the middle. Dasan and Aviram were lovers of the Jewish people by nature. Only if you love Jews by nature would you be willing to take a beating for them and then have the t- take the risk of going to Pharaoh on their behalf and then have the guts <coughs> to scream out against Moses and Aaron, their fight between themselves was drastically contrary to their nature. Their nature is to love their fellow Jew. And now they're fighting, and this is why he said to the wicked one, Why are you going to strike your fellow? Not why did you strike, but why are you going to strike? Because for such lovers of the Jewish people, the very event of a fight, even without an actual strike, is contrary to their nature and therefore termed wicked. It's funny that the first time that they introduce them, it's in, in a negative way and then you say it's not their nature. So That's Torah. That's when you true. know all of the different parts, all the moving parts in the Torah, and then you start to, you're start. you able to kind of apply. In other words, yeah, in the beginning of the Torah, in the beginning of the parasham when they introduced they're pretty bad. Towards the end, when you when you towards the end of the parsha, when you hear that Dusin and Navirim, they were the ones that were beaten on behalf of their fellow Jews, and they were the ones that went to Pharaoh, and then they come to Moses and they're basically saying, Moses, what's going on? You're able to read into that that the ones that you're talking here about people, that are lovers of their fellow Jews. So, one second. So, what happened sixty years earlier? They were fighting with each other. That that means only the Rebbe could look at it this way. The Rebbe is so positive. The Rebbe says. What's the real Dawson and an Aviram? They love their fellow Jew. Here, the fact that they're fighting with each other, that that's the complete opposite of their nature, right? And that's why Moshe is calling them Russia. Why, why is he calling them wicked one? Why are you going against your nature? <clears throat> Russia, wicked one, means they're abusing the nature of something. Right? When you go into a national park, right? A national park, and you, and you litter, and you take away things from it, you're evil. Why? You're abusing the nature, right? That's what we discussed on Shabbos. So so what's the idea over here? We're seeing that this whole story of Dawson and Aviram fighting just didn't fit. It was an aberration. That's why they're called Russia. As a result, Dawson and Aviram are the ultimate source for this principle. We see in their case that going against nature and the regular practice earns one the moniker of wicked even without an actual strike. Similarly, any person who lifts their hand against their fellow is abusing the nature and purpose of their hand and are therefore termed wicked, even without laying an actual blow. Fine. The story of Dawson and Aviram continues that they informed on Moses the Pharaoh Upon seeing that there are wicked slanderers among the Jewish people, Moses was concerned that that they weren't worthy of being redeemed as a result. Here he uses again the term, Rishayim, wicked. Right? Why? Derogatory speech also expresses a change of nature. The function of the tongue is to speak positive words, words of Torah, goodness and holiness. By uttering derogatory speech, which is what Dawson and Aviram did, they told, they tattled on Moses to Pharaoh, a person is abusing the function of their tongue, similarly to raising a hand against their fellow. So in other words, the term rasha, it's not just because they did something bad to someone else, they hurt someone else, you hurt someone rasha means how could you go and take something that God gave you with a specific purpose, how could you abuse it, by using it in a way that's contrary to its purpose. That's the term in Asha. Yeah. So now, like this. So what's, what's, the, what's the lesson from all of this? Remember, this is the first message that Moses gives to the Jewish people. Think about it. The first time we hear Moses speak is here. The first time we see Moses act is when he kills the Egyptian in order to save a fellow Jew. The first time he opens his mouth is to teach us this lesson. It says, what's he telling them? He says, guys, you realize what your hand is for? Your hand is there to do mitzvahs. How could you go and abuse that beautiful, wonderful, holy hand to do something that's just opposite? And that's applied to everything. Using anything in this world, using any part of our body, any moment of our life to do something that's contrary to God's desire, that's an abuse of its nature. Russia, wicked, what are you doing? We can learn from this story a practical lesson in addition to the obvious point of how careful we must uh, we must be to respect others and not so much as raise a hand against them but here is another point we can also learn a positive lesson that irrespective of how much we have already achieved with love of our fellows and helping other jews we can and must continue to increase in this regard going beyond our previous standard this is raising a hand for our fellows in a positive sense. Okay, so here's here's the deal. So it, it, it's a little bit cryptic here, but are, in fact, the Reb actually um, edited this and it was officially published. It's a little bit clearer there. Uh, so so the the idea is like this. What did we say earlier? That the hand was created in order to do mitzvahs, in order to help a fellow, to give charity, etc. So, what do we say? That if you lift your hand to hit someone, that's an abuse of nature, and you're called a Russia. The word Russia, the word Russia, shows up in a positive sense um, when it speaks about King Saul. King Saul uh, was the first king of the Jewish people, and the first order of business for a king was basically to fight the enemies, right? The enemies were coming, and they were harassing the Jews, etc., and so, the, so the, the prophet tells us that Saul, he, um, he fought against the Philistines. And wherever he went, we we'll Yarshia. So the way you, Yarshia comes with the word Rasha. Yarshia could mean he, he caused them tremendous terror. The Talmud says, no, wherever he went, he was successful. He was successful in his battles. So we hear the word Rasha is being used in a very positive way. We're using that to show, like you know, it was it was successful like a beast, like you know, like in 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 such a tremendous way. So what we're saying is like this: you could raise your hand in an abuse of nature to hurt someone, or you could raise your hand, elevate your hand, to go above and beyond your nature to help others. That's right. Or protect. To help protect whatever it might be, but you're able to go against your nature to go and lift up your hand to use that hand that usually gives tzaka to this amount, usually does kindness to this amount, to do above and beyond. Um, I'd just like to share with you just a very powerful message about the hand. We're talking about the hand here, and that the hand is the source for mitzvahs, and that a person can go above and beyond their, um, their abilities through using their hand. Moshe's life Moshe's life was saved because someone stretched out their hand. What's the story? When Moshe was a little baby, he was three months old. His mother put him into a little basket to put him onto the water because the Egyptians were looking for him. He's out there on the water. And Pharaoh's daughter, Batya, came down to the water to bathe. And she sees that there is a little basket, a little basket that's floating. And she wants to save the baby that's in there. So so the the Talmud discusses what exactly happened over there. One of the explanations is is that she stretched out her hand. She stretched out her hand, but the, the, the baby was much further. And a miracle happened. She stretched out her hand, and her hand stretched, stretched many, many feet until it reached the basket. And then it went back to its original size. Tremendous miracle. Right? So the Rebbe writes in a letter, something. It's, 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 it's literally two lines, but it's such a profound lesson. So what was Batya thinking? Why did she stretch out her hand if the basket is further down? Why would you do that, right? So I'm trying to get the tissue that's on the other side of the table. It's far. Stretching out my hand is the silliest thing to do. I would say, excuse me, can you please pass me the tissues? That's what I would do. If no one's here, I would get up and walk over to it, right? Why would I stretch them out? What's the purpose of stretching out the hand? Batya knew that she was a limited person. Her hand is only this size. She knows that the baby who needs to be saved is much further out. She knows that according to nature, she can't reach the baby. But she decided she has to do something. She's going to reach out her hand. She knows her hand won't reach. That's not your business. You have to reach out your hand. And God will do the rest. And that's what happened. God did the rest. But if you don't reach out your hand to help, you don't reach out your hand to do the right thing, then nothing's going to happen. So the lesson we can learn from here is that that, that the hand is a tremendous gift from God. But if you look at the hand, the hand is limited. Don't worry about it. Your hand has to do what it needs to do. And even if what you're trying to accomplish seems to be beyond the grasp of the hand, pun intended, if it seems to be beyond the means of the hand, don't worry, God will take care of the rest, but you have to do your part you have to stretch out your hand. So may God Almighty help us that we should first of all only use our hands for the right things, for good things, for positive things, for constructive things. We should never abuse it. One second. Uh? And our tongues. And our tongues, that's right. We also mentioned our tongues. We should also use it for only positive things. And even if it seems that our hand is not capable of achieving that which needs to be achieved, you do what you can and God will take care of the rest. And with that, we will conclude today's class. Thank you all for joining us, and I wish you a wonderful, wonderful evening.